and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Felipe Jimenez, Assistant Professor of Law and Philosophy at the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. We will discuss his draft article, The Case for Formalism in Contract Law Adjudication. So welcome to the show, Felipe. Thank you very much for having me. Ah, the pleasure is all mine. Uh, I really appreciate you reaching out and inquiring about being on the show and sending me your paper to read because uh, it was fantastic and I learned a lot. And in particular, I learned some things that I think I might have to incorporate into my own work. So thanks a ton. Thank you so much for for reading the paper and, and for having me. Okay. So... I thought that for listeners who might not be sort of steeped in legal theory, we could start by sort of having you explain some of the terminology or concepts that you use in the paper to talk about how we should think about contract law. So as you note in your paper, formalism kind of has a bad name among legal scholars and has for a while. And so there's this truism that we're, we're all realists now to sort of riff off Nixon a little bit, right? So, so, so what's the difference between legal formalism and, and legal realism, just in a nutshell? Sure. I would say that formalism is the idea that judges should decide cases and typically decide cases by applying pre-existing legal materials. And that might be statutes or it might be precedents. And uh, realism is basically historically a reaction to 19th century formalism. And it's a reaction that basically claims first that descriptively that's not correct and that judges basically figure out what outcome they want to get based on their policy preferences. And then they provide some sort of account for why that um, that outcome might be justified on the basis of law, but that's not really what's driving the outcome. And normatively, I think legal realists um, were committed to a view of uh, law reform that was um, that saw the task of the judge as not just applying law, but also advancing um, normative outcomes that they believed were desirable. Mm. And so it's. I would say the opposition is both at the normative and at the descriptive level. Um, and you can see this opposition playing out uh, well, first historically between the 19th century formalists like Langdell and then the realist backlash against that. But also you can see it nowadays, for instance, in contract interpretation, there's a long uh, dispute between people who think um, that judges should try to narrow their attention to the four corners of contracts and so on and so forth, whereas other people who think that actually judges should look at context and extrinsic evidence in order to try to make sure they get the right outcome. Okay, so just to clarify or, or reiterate then, the sort of realist objection to formalism then is twofold in the sense that realists say that not only is the sort of descriptive account offered by legal formalists, not how judges actually go about deciding cases, but also the sort of normative, uh, the sort of normative goals of formalism 
are not the right normative goals or not the goals we should have. And we should be thinking more about sort of outcomes and the kind of policy outcomes in particular cases rather than trying to apply neutral principles. Is, is that more or less the sort of distinction there? I think that's right. And I think that um, that realists saw the the commitments of formalism regarding the institutional position of judges as basically an obstacle to social change. And so, and, and, you know, in all fairness, that was actually true to some extent. So, so uh, if you look at Lochner, that seems to be a clear example of that problem that the realists were identifying. Mm, mm, yeah, I mean, Lochner is kind of the paradigm example of legal formalism run amok, at least in the legal realist account, it seems. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, so you also distinguish between instrumentalist and non-instrumentalist theories of, of law. And I wonder if you could talk about what that distinction means, especially or in particular in relation to contract law and the goals of contract law. Right. So I would say that instrumentalism is just the view that law is a means to an end. And in a sense, it's almost part of the air we breathe in the U.S. So not just because of legal realists, but after that, if you think about, you know, the legal process school, if you think about law and economics, even if you think about um, critical approaches, you know, critical legal studies and critical race theory, I think all of them have this view of law basically being an instrument of goals and that those goals might be connected to economic efficiency as in law and economics, or they might be connected to sort of the pure politics, like in the more critical approaches. Um, and in private law, instrumentalism has basically been the, 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 um, the, um, the main approach used by law and economics scholars um and and therefore non-instrumentalism in a sense is a is a reaction to the dominance that law and economics once had in in contract theory so you know in the 1970s and 1980s i think particularly in the law of torts um you know sort of deterrence accounts and utilitarian accounts of the law were pretty much dominant and so uh in the late 80s and early 90s there's this professor at uh the University of Toronto which is uh who's Ernest Weinrib and he starts developing a sort of non-instrumentalist theory of private law that responds to uh law and economics and basically responds to everyone who thinks that law is a means to an end and says actually law uh, is sort sort of a self-justificatory enterprise. It justifies itself, and in order to make moral sense of the law, you don't need to reach out to other um, normative considerations beyond those used by uh, by legal doctrine and by judges. And uh, in that opposition, I definitely see myself as part of the instrumentalist camp. That is, I don't think there's much sense in denying that the reason why law matters and why law has value is because it helps us achieve, uh, you know, morally important ends. Now, the difference that I have with most law and economics scholars is twofold. So the first difference is that my understanding of the values that underlie legal institutions and the law of contracts in particular is, I think, more pluralistic. So I'm not just committed to the view of efficiency as the goal of legal institutions. I think 
we care about other things beyond efficiency. And in the paper, I discuss, for instance, autonomy as one important goal served by the law of contracts. And the second difference between my approach and sort of the classical law and economics approach is that I make a distinction that I think they fail to make between the justification of legal institutions and the justifications of the actions that agents within those institutions take. So I basically separate questions about what justifies the law of contracts or what makes the contract the law of contracts valuable from questions about how judges should decide disputes. Whereas if you look at, for instance, Richard Posner, it's very clear that he thinks that whatever you say about uh, contract laws foundations will also have an important bearing on, uh, not actually just an important bearing, will actually determine how judges should decide cases. Mm-hmm. Well, so I usually associate formalism with non instrumentalism in the sense that there's kind of like uh, people like Weinreb, but many other scholars who you mentioned in the paper as well, seem to look at kind of formal legal doctrine and including formal contract law doctrine and imbue it with a certain kind of intrinsic normative weight. But you offer a instrumentalist account of formalism, which I find a really kind of interesting and provocative move. I mean, how do you avoid non-instrumentalism in sort of advocating a formalist approach? I mean, you touched on it a a little bit a a moment ago, but maybe you could expand on sort of how you can avoid that non-instrumentalist tendency that's so common among formalists. Sure. So I think um, in most of... um recent scholarship in the U.S., what you typically see, so if you think, for instance, about Ronald Dworkin, right, who is in a sense the quintessential jurisprudential version of American legal culture, he thinks that judges need an underlying theory of law to decide cases, and therefore that there's no important distinction between what judges do and sort of the the ultimate grounds or or the ultimate justification of legal institutions. And I think that just captures a very widespread um, structural assumption about legal institutions that a lot of people seem to have, which is that basically whatever is true about the law's moral foundations or whatever theory explains or justifies the foundations of legal practice or legal institutions also plays uh, a crucial role in the adjudication of actual disputes. So that, for instance, if you think that the law is about efficiency, you should also tell judges that they should decide in a way that maximizes social welfare. Or if you think that, for instance, punishment is an institution justified because we want to deter crime, the judges should decide on the basis of what will deter deter crime overall. And what I respond to that assumption sort of my response to that assumption is that actually it doesn't make sense to think that way about legal institutions, because when you look at legal institutions, you can basically separate questions about why we have those legal institutions and sort of evaluative questions about the the value and the moral worth of those legal institutions and questions 
about how specific institutional agents should behave within those institutions. So in a sense, a distinction between justifying legal regimes and uh, applying the rules that are part of that regime. And this is a distinction that has a long history in, in legal and political philosophy. So it's a distinction that John Rawls uh, articulates in this paper, Two Concepts of Rules, which was published in the 1950s and which has found a, a really significant impact on the way I think about law and social practices generally. But I think it's also implicit, for instance, in HLA Hart's distinction between internal and external perspectives to legal institutions. So uh, what I think is wrong, both in Weinrib's view and in the law and economics view, is that they fail to make this distinction. So law and economics thinks because efficiency justifies private law, private law judges should try to achieve efficient outcomes in their decisions. And Weinrib, in a sense, makes just the mirror image mistake, which is thinking because judges can only consider a certain limited domain of reasons and considerations, that's the end of the story for the justification of private law. And that's why he ends up with this claim that basically private law justifies itself. It doesn't need to refer to sort of extrinsic ends and values. I mean, if, if I may, it, it kind of struck me that you were making a, both like a descriptive and a normative objection to these kinds of more theoretically rich or kind of more theoretically um, driven accounts of how legal decision making happens in the sense that like, it seems like there's this presumption that legal theory is necessary to making legal decisions. And it seems like you kind of question how deep a legal theory you really need to adjudicate cases. And also there's this assumption that that's what judges are actually doing. And it seems to me that actually it's like someone like Posner is almost like the exception that proves the rule. And most judges don't think that that's what they're doing, right? They think that they're doing more or less doing formalism. Yeah. So I, I think that's perfectly right. So there's this uh, very kind of typical phrase, uh, you need a theory to defeat a theory, right? And so the, the underlying idea seems to be that if you don't like how a certain judge is deciding certain types of disputes, you need to come up with a whole theoretical framework to oppose that perspective. And you see this, I think, playing out in a bunch of different fields. So you see it, you know, in private law, in the, the discussion between uh, sort of early law and economics scholars like uh, Posner, but also like Louis Kaplow and Steve Chevelle on the one hand, and on the other hand, people like Peter Benson or Ernest Weinrib. Um, but I think most uh, most lawyers and most judges don't think that way. That is, they don't think you need a really articulated uh, interpretive or just justificatory theory about legal institutions in order to make good decisions within them. And in fact, if you think about sort of how we have designed law schools and how we have set up courts, that seems to vindicate the idea that actually what, what drives legal education and also legal reasoning as an institutional matter is not having great articulated theories about ultimate questions of um, justice or uh, about how we should organize society, but rather that it's a much more narrow and technical 
uh, set of questions and expertise that we're going after. And in a sense, I'm trying to provide uh, a philosophically ambitious argument for that sort of philosophically unambitious approach to legal adjudication and to legal institutions generally. So maybe we could talk a little bit about how that would work in practice and maybe even like specifically in a contract law context. So when it comes to like, for example, like hard cases, right? We know that there's like multiple different kinds of hard cases and that, you know, judges do in fact decide them, many of them formalistically, some of them in a more kind of legal realist inflected fashion, sort of how can and should legal formalism on the ground deal with hard cases? And why do you think a formalist approach is preferable to a realist approach, you know, in the actual adjudication process? Right. So so I think um, legal formalism, in the way I, I describe it in the paper, um, has the tools to deal with hard cases. And I discuss in the paper two types of hard cases. So some hard cases might be hard because the legal materials just don't give you an answer or they're ambiguous in the answer they give you. So they're indeterminate in a sense. Or hard cases might be hard because the legal materials seem to give you an answer and the answer just seems on its face inadequate. And And then the question is how you deal with those two situations. And I think sort of the strawman version that we're used to um, about formalism seems to suggest that in those cases, you know, formalism says, you know, the judge just needs to apply the law. If the outcome is terrible, well, so be it. Uh, and it doesn't matter. But I think if you actually look at most of the sort of doctrinal tradition in private law, uh, you know, that there are several... Uh, tools that judges use to deal with these situations. And this is just a really long tradition. So if you go to Savigny, who's a German jurist, uh, you know, more than 200 years ago, he already had a very sophisticated account of how judges could deal with situations where rules gave you inappropriate outcomes that just didn't involve sort of, you know, embracing full-blown discretion or just policy uh, policy making, uh, so I think there's a long tradition for that, and 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 I think the the most familiar way in which that operates is through legal principles and legal concepts. So basically, this kind of more open ended legal standards um, that allow you, on the one hand, to expand uh, the law and to reach. Um, adequate outcomes when, when on its face the law doesn't give you the right outcome, but also to do so in a way that's constrained, that's uh, that 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 doesn't break with the previous tradition, and then that in a sense seems to flow from that tradition rather than break from it. And I think the best example of this is the jurisprudence of Cardoso, though I know some people will disagree with that characterization of his approach. Um, and turning to the second part, which is why why it's good to have this sort of approach, um, I think there are reasons that are peculiar to contract law uh, that are connected to the values that contract law plausibly serves. So if you think about efficiency and autonomy, I think bo- both of those sets of concerns um, 
should lead you to value predictability and certainty and doctrinal stability. Uh, but I also think there are values beyond the law of contract. So typical, typical kind of rule of law values that um, that would uh, would advise for a formalist approach. And the last thing I will say is, I also think that the very way in which uh, judicial institutions are set up suggests that we actually don't want them to try to take into account all of the relevant information about the outcomes of their decisions, about the effects of their decisions, and rather that we want them to narrow narrowly uh, focus their attention in just a few uh, important central aspects, rather than just you know engage in in honestly what is in the end a bit of intuitive uh, guessing about what the outcomes, the, the practical outcomes of their decisions will be. Because typically, given the way in which they're set up, judges just don't have access to what the effects of their decisions will be. Mm. So, I mean, it, it struck me reading the paper that one oddity or kind of it's, it's about a lot of other instrumentalist approaches, they seem very focused on individual decisions and individual outcomes. And it seems to me that in a way, what you're suggesting is that when we think about how we want institutional actors to do legal decision-making, to do adjudication, we should be taking a more holistic view and not necessarily always asking about the outcome of particular cases, but asking about the kind of functioning of the system as as a whole and whether that produces the kinds of outcomes that we we want is is that a fair take on 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 what you're saying yeah i think that's right so i think when you just think about one specific case and one specific judge uh it's very easy to feel the pool of a very open-ended contextual and uh unconstrained approach to decision-making. Because basically the idea is that at least up to a certain point, more information and consideration of more sort of data points will help you make more fine-grained and and sort of context-sensitive decisions, right? Uh, And therefore, in every one given instance, it seems that there's not much volume following sort of strict rules and applying them. But the value, the instrumental value of rules and the instrumental value of legal formality generally is not captured in this specific instance, but it's rather captured uh, from a wholesale perspective. So the crucial question in theories of adjudication is not how uh, one judge would decide a specific dispute, but rather how we want judges in general and in a coordinated way to decide disputes. So if you think that you know, if all you're thinking about is how would Cardoso or Posner or Easterbrook decide a contracts case, it's very easy to think, well, actually, we should consider all the relevant information and let the judge decide what's best, all things considered. Because after all, these are great judges uh, and there's a reason why they're so famous and their opinions have uh, have been considered as, as important uh, as important. Um, sources of, you know, learning and, and teaching. But um, but if you think about sort of the median judge, the median judge is probably not like Posner, Trainer, and Easterbrook. 
And if you think about the long-term effects of inviting judges to act as if they were, you know, Easterbrook or Cardoso or Posner or as Dworkin's Hercules, well, the outcome will probably be not uh, as good as it looks like when you just think about one specific dispute. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's a kind of humility to the approach you're suggesting. I mean, it's like you're asking institutional actors, but legal theorists as well, to be more humble, both about their role and also in some ways, like what they have to contribute to the adjudicative process. Yeah, so, so that that's definitely true. I, I think uh, there's a sense of a lot of, of epistemic humility that is connected to the, I would say to this paper, but generally to my scholarship and sort of to my research agenda. So I, I, I very much agree with this sort of Hayekian point that no one really knows enough about how social institutions and society generally work. So we should be really cautious about sort of inviting institutional actors to engage in big changes and 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 to sort of leave aside the institutional constraints that they face. Uh, I think there's a good reason for those institutional constraints. Um, but also because of that, uh, the argument I make in the paper is tentative. So I'm open to considering objections. And I, and I say in the paper that basically empirical evidence and sort of actual facts have the ultimate word in what the right approach to contract law adjudication is, or to adjudication in any other area, for that matter, is. But but what I'm trying to give here is a set of general arguments as to why, you know, the usual um, the usual bad name ascribed to formalism is not actually justified. And there's value in thinking about how uh, how a more constrained approach to adjudication would work in. Uh, in the resolution of contractual disputes. Mm. So you also, you use the term value pluralism quite a few times in, in the paper. And, and I think you've, you've touched on this issue a little bit already, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of what you mean specifically by value pluralism and how you think a more kind of formalist forward approach to the actual process of adjudication would be more consistent with plural values than alternative approaches suggested both by other formalists, but also by, by realists. Right. So this is also one big difference that my approach has with most uh, instrumentalist writers. So most instrumentalists and particularly legal economists are typically thinking of just one value, uh, economic efficiency or something, you know, like wealth maximization or something like that. Whereas um, I have what I, what I label as a more pluralistic approach. So first value pluralism is this idea that there's just there's not just one thing we care about. We care about very different things and we care about them in different ways. Uh, and so uh, in, the, in the case of contract law, for instance, I think that we not only care about contracts because they help us structure markets and because they allow parties to uh, maximize their joint gains, but also because they are an important tool for people to develop, develop their life projects they give them authority over their rights and obligations, and that has moral value. And also because it, 
contracts in in a sense establish a limited but important form of equality in social relationships. Um, so it, so and because I believe that that's true about the foundations of contract law, I think telling judges to engage in open-ended decision-making to try to find an, a right balance between those values is a recipe for unpredictability and disaster because it's just, it's not easy to know how you trade off these different values and how to decide in, the, in cases of conflict. And so I think that formalism has a lot of value as a decision procedure that basically um, ignores those ultimate questions about moral value and tells judges to uh, try to decide on the basis of more narrow uh, and and less uh, you know less foundational reasons. And the second thing I would say about uh, value pluralism is that even if you don't agree with me that the foundations of contract law are plural, and you think that there's only one value underlying the law of contract, so it might be you know promissory obligation, or it might be efficiency, or it might just be autonomy, and so on. Even if you thought that, as a matter of fact, people don't agree about what the foundations of contract law are. And so if you read you know, what has been written in contract theory in the past 10 or 15 years, you will note that for every, for every scholar, there's one theory. So basically, no one agrees about the foundations of contract law. Um, and inviting judges to try to make decisions on the basis of those foundations would just replicate that. Uh, disagreement. So in a sense, formalism is also a good way to deal with that, uh, you know, the fact of pluralism about contract laws foundations. Mm. So I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about legal change as well, like how and when can and should judges engage in changing the doctrines that formalism tells them to apply and to what you know to what extent or how should we apportion the authority to make those changes as between the judiciary and the legislature so in my view um it's inevitable that given how legal materials are structured and um the limits in the ability of those legal materials to give you a determined outcome for any case, that judges will sometimes have to develop the law and go beyond what those legal materials uh, give them in terms of um, ways of addressing contractual disputes. Um, but there, then the question is how you develop the law, how legal change is done by judges. And I think there. Uh, we shouldn't abandon the sort of underlying commitments for formalism in easier cases. And in that case, the question is, um, what mechanisms does uh, legal doctrine give you to develop the law? And I think legal principles can play a crucial role in that. Um, the other thing that I would say is that my theory is sort of heavily dependent on the time and place where you're at. So I say at some point that basically this is a theory for the current law of contracts in, in contemporary Western jurisdictions. And the reason for that is that in earlier stages of development where you just didn't have enough legal materials and enough law, I would be much more open to have a more open-ended decision procedure where judges can 
basically innovate and generate new doctrines and new rules. But I think that given the stage of development of the common law where we're at, the gains from a more open-ended procedure just are not sufficient to warrant giving judges that authority. And so I think it makes more sense to, on the one hand, allow them to develop the law and to expand the reach of legal materials, but on the other hand, to tell them to do that in a way that's constrained. And so and so I think the best example of that approach is Cardoso. So Cardoso innovated uh, in several aspects of contract doctrine, but he also did that he also did that in a way that connected those innovations to pre-existing legal materials. And I think that's the right way to go about it. Mm. So in in kind of in closing, would you characterize the argument you're making in this paper more as a this is how we should think about legal adjudication? Uh, and the sort of framework in which adjudication ought to occur because it will do these kinds of, it will kind of have these kinds of instrumental outcomes or kind of a, a descriptive account of like, this is what's actually happening and that's fine. And objections to that are mistaken because it does in fact produce better outcomes than the alternatives. Sure. So I would say it's a normative argument. So I'm saying why there are good reasons for this approach um, to contract law adjudication. And as you know, the, the reasons are connected to consequences and to the impact of this decision procedure as compared to other uh, approaches to contract law adjudication. But at the same time, I think, in a sense, I'm also vindicating a kind of a the traditional approach to... Uh, to legal adjudication. And I think, um, you know, it's okay and it's valuable to have a critical approach towards judicial discourse. And it's it's valuable to critically evaluate the law and to say when judges go wrong, but also that we should be careful of not, uh, you know, also losing all the benefits of this really long tradition that I think in fact exists in most uh legal systems, at least in the civil law and the common law, I think in both cases, there's a tradition of centuries of thinking carefully through legal materials and legal concepts. And I think we shouldn't lose that. Uh, While at the same time, you know, we should be completely aware as the legal realists taught us that law is an instrument of politics and that we should always have our critical eyes open to morally evaluate and, 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 try to change law when it's problematic. Mm, yeah, I mean, there's a way in which the project is almost kind of like meta-realist to me in the sense that you're kind of advocating to step away from the individual decisions and outcomes and think about the kind of big picture institutional questions. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And in a sense, I think, uh, you know, I overstate the differences between my approach and the realist. So I think some realists would be actually sympathetic to this approach. And most realists, I think at least the best ones. So if you think about Pound, for instance, I think they were actually really um, careful and thoughtful about legal doctrine. So I think, you know, just as formalism has been deformed by this sort of strawman version, there's also a deformed version of realism. So, you know, perhaps that's the next paper. 
<laughs> awesome. Well, Felipe, thank you so much. It's been great having you on the show. I think this paper is fantastic, and I look forward to seeing the final version in print probably sometime next year or something, I imagine. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been really a, pre- a pleasure, and you know, just keep the, the show going. This is Sal, the service station man's pal. We've got some news for you. News we think you're going to like hearing. During the week of May 16th, the second mailing of the service station selling program will reach your market. It's a bright 16-page two-color catalog that shows off the complete line of BF Goodrich TBA merchandise along with your line of petroleum products. On the cover will be featured the handsome barbecue grill that you've been hearing so much about. I find it irresistible. And we know that the grill is going to bring a lot of new faces into your station. Display it big. A grill's best friend is its display. Put plenty of grills out where the customers can see them. Spotlight them at their shining best with the display materials furnished. Make sure that your salespeople know what an important part the grill is designed to play in your whole summer selling program. Talk it up. Pass the news about it along to your friends and your customers. We'll have the whole town talking. But don't let your selling die when they've bought the grill. They've got the grill now. They must be planning to use it at the beach, on picnics, or during vacation time. For their safety, their comfort, and their motoring pleasure, they should make sure that their car is in tip-top shape. I always like to keep things in good shape, don't you? Bring them in with the grill. Then use its sale as a springboard to sell tires and other TBA items. I'll be seeing you on the other side of this record.